A cure for hemophilia is finally here. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. Last year, the FDA approved the first gene therapy for hemophilia B. This year, the first gene therapy may be approved for hemophilia A. What does the gene therapy revolution mean for patients, payers, and pharma? I'm joined by Ankita Chowdhury from Cineos Health Consulting to answer just that. Gene therapy for hemophilia next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Ankita Chaudhry, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. So we're talking about gene therapy for hemophilia. I'm really excited about gene therapy for hemophilia. Tell me what's going on in the field right now. Yeah, it's such an exciting time. We've had two products get approval recently, one in Europe and one in the U.S., and the alternative approvals are expected this quarter. So they should be approved, both geographies, as of March in 2023. And these are the first gene therapies based on AAV5 vectors, one targeting hemophilia A, the other targeting hemophilia B patients. AV5, that's adenovirus? Adeno-associated virus, yep. Oh, AAV, got it. It's obviously great that we're targeting these diseases because they're genetic diseases and we know, we just know enough about them to know that if we go in, we don't have to change a lot of genes. We don't have to fix a lot of genes. We just have to put a new gene in there. That's my basic belief. Am I repeating reality? That's correct. So this is a one gene, one disease situation. So basically you're replacing a lacking gene or a misfunctioning gene. In hemophilia A, you're talking about factor eight that's missing and hemophilia B, factor nine is missing. So you're really just replacing that one gene, packaging it up into those vectors and the virus then enters the liver cells and gets picked up into liver cells and basically goes into your own genome and then your cells are then producing those proteins. Does it really need to replace it or is it just we put a whole bunch of copies in, we don't know quite where they go and we can just overwhelm bad or non-existent protein? You could also have bad protein or non-existent protein. So that's what I mean, uh, replacing a non-functioning or a defective gene. Yeah. Okay. This isn't like a CRISPR sort of thing where we're trying to go in and find the exact gene. Right. It's not a find and replace. Yep. You got it. It's so easier. Much easier. Exactly. It doesn't matter where it gets put into your genome. In fact, it will probably get inserted into random places. That's actually where some of the health and safety risks come from, because the transgene might get inserted into places you don't want it induced in. That's on the safety risk side, actually. But it's much easier than the CRISPR thing where you're going in and you have to find the exact gene, remove that, and then swap in the right DNA sequence. The risks that we see, if you put something randomly in your genome somewhere, you could randomly cause cancer. You could randomly knock out some gene you don't want to have knocked out. You could randomly mess with something. I'm not saying those risks are high, but those risks are there. Do you think, based on what you're seeing and what you're hearing, that these AAV vectors are a temporary step that we're going through now because they were easier to get? We understood viruses, so we could just use them, hijack them to do what we needed to do. But other things are better or our AAV is going to be around forever. And we've got to think about AAV, every kind of gene therapy. And by the way, maybe worry about anti-AAV antibodies. 
I mean, it's definitely trade-offs associated with all the different strategies that are being pursued. The AAV5s in particular have some health risk. You know, there's a very high risk of clinical holes with all cell and gene therapies. And you can see that whether it's an antisense oligonucleotide, whether it's just a peptide, small molecule-based thing, or the CAR-Ts, right? And these viral gene therapies. So there's a high risk of clinical holes that we've seen with all of these products in development. But to your question of, is it just a transitional step to something bigger and better? I think these are around for a little while. The AAV5 platform has a lot of promise and many, many big manufacturers have recently either acquired smaller biotechs or have sort of in-house developed these AAV5 vectors on their own because there's so much promise in this technology. Yeah, and the cost for hemophilia is enormous. I don't know what they are. Maybe you know the numbers off the top of your head, but I want to say that it's far in excess of $100,000 per patient per year. Yes. And that's why the ICER conversation is so interesting because they're actually looking at the cost effectiveness of these potentially durable, potentially curative gene therapies. Yeah. ICER is the industry's favorite frenemy, I guess, ICER being the organization that makes some sort of claim of cost effectiveness. Usually the cost effectiveness, by the way, is very narrowly tailored to the exact medical costs of that patient, the exact offsets that you can get from the drug. It's not cost to society. It's not a lot of other costs that might be really important and huge. The deck is stacked against the manufacturer with ICER, and you're still saying that it's cost effective. Yeah. So with these two therapies in particular, they actually did come up with very high price points where they are endorsing these two drugs. Roctavian, for example, I think they said 1.96 million would be an endorsable price. And then for Hemgenics, they came up with a range of 2.9 to 2.96 million as being cost effective. You work and I work with payers a lot. We work with market access as part of our professional roles. What is it that we're hearing or expecting to see as a response from payers. These are very high dollar values and a payer may not have a memory that lasts more than two years because patients cycle among plans. So they may not care about the fact that they're going to save money down the road. Exactly. In in the U.S. healthcare system, the longevity of these drugs or these therapies isn't particularly very helpful, really. Bayers have come at these gene therapies a couple of different ways. We've seen them rely on stop-loss insurance more and more, reinsurance more and more. With the CAR-Ts, we also saw them limiting the network of providers, I think because it helps them with contracting with the providers. That's one thing we've seen them do. We've also seen... I think some payers actually carve out a cell and gene therapy benefits altogether from their benefits. So it's almost like a separate kind of benefit members would need to buy. As you're saying, patients will move from one plan to the next every year, every one and a half year. So it's really the longevity doesn't play well in the U.S. space. So I'm not sure how common hemophilia really is. The flip side of this is when we talk to payers about some disease where they have two patients in their plan and their response is almost complete indifference to whatever price point that one names because it just is a rounding error. It doesn't matter. And is hemophilia in that camp where it can be benign neglect? The fact that it is a price point that maybe in excess of a million dollars is irrelevant to them from a budgetary perspective? Or is hemophilia in this tweener space where there are enough patients that this is really going to hurt at least short term. So these are both designated orphan therapies. 
in the U.S., the estimated prevalence is sort of in the range of 30,000 for hemophilia that includes A and B. 75% of those are hemophilia A patients, and then the remaining 25% are hemophilia B patients. So yes, definitely on the small side when it comes to epi. Yeah, but 30,000 times a million dollars is $30 billion, though a one-time charge of $30 billion. That's the promise. Interestingly, with Roctavian, if you look at the ISA report, they're already sort of suggesting that it's probably not a one-time durable therapy because the five-year data showing the factor eight activity go down as you follow these patients for longer periods of time. I guess that's the issue about getting it into liver cells, which the liver turns over and not your whole body. Yeah. And then your body has many different ways of getting rid of foreign genetic material. So <laughs> lots of things that are causing the activity to go down. What are we hearing that payers are saying? Maybe that it's a large enough line item for them to care. Their memories are short, or at least their future memories are short. A couple of years in the future is really all you might calculate for a patient. They're not really set up to capture in their own math the financial upside of losing medical costs that are long-term. How are we hearing that payers are dealing with or thinking about these gene therapies? I think because these are, again, addressing disease areas that have very high unmet need, a really significant clinical burden to patients, they want to see if they can find a way to make the therapies available to patients. I mean, I remember reading a quote actually from Cigna's, I think it might have been one of their executives saying they have come up with a program where they want to actually get rid of copays for patients because the $6,000 that you're paying towards your copay isn't really making much of a dent when your therapy costs a million or two million. And all it is is an issue for the patients to access the drug. So they wanted to simplify how patients can get access to this. You know, that's interesting. Cigna, in my experience, has been extraordinarily clinically motivated and really pretty dismissive of anything that has to deal with patient preference, something like that. If they like something, it's available. If they don't like something, it's gone. It's interesting to hear that they're essentially clinically coming down on the side of this is something we want patients to have. So we're going to try to make it even easier than we have to. Yeah, I'm sure they're working on ways to make the math still work out in their favor. There is a per member per month fee that needs to be paid by the health plan to this program. It's called the Embark Benefit Protection Platform. That sort of offsets, I think, some of the finances they're losing from the copay from the patient. So one thing that we've heard essentially over the years is that the different payers, some of them are extraordinarily responsive to doing the right thing. Some of them where clinic matters and is a real driver. Others are truly financially motivated. And if they lose out in the rebate at one extreme, then it doesn't matter that you saved X number of dollars in medical costs. I think it's one of those cases where it's like, I'm going to tell you a story and the story is going to make you sad, (laughs) where the payers don't act in ways that seem cool. One of the ways that we've heard, it seems we always hear this from innovators especially if they haven't been in the market for a long time, is that this can all be solved by value-based agreements. If we could just make an agreement with them that, look, we're going to cure the patient for this many years, you don't have to pay us if it doesn't come through. That's great, right? And my question to you is, what about value-based agreements in this? There's a lot of talk about value-based agreements and outcomes-based agreements in this space. When you were talking about different bears coming at this in different ways, I was thinking about Harvard Pilgrim 
they've been on the forefront of actually administering and executing on some of these agreements. There are two specific examples. One was with Spark Therapeutics and their drug Luxterna when it first came out. They actually have an efficacy-based rebate plan that they came up with. For Alnylam, they came up with less efficacy-based and more easier-to-administer claims-based payment plans. The one was just a prevalence-based adjustment. Essentially, if they had mispredicted the number of patients the plan would be paying for, there was a rebate associated with that. Same with the number of vials of drug that the patient would need. So those two are easier to administer, but Alnylam and Harvard Pilgrim did come up with those innovative payment agreements. Do we expect those to go forward from Harvard Pilgrim in particular? I think, I think that was driven by Jim Kenny when he was running the show there on that. And he liked value-based agreements and was a forefront leader on that. But he's moved on. I think Harvard Pilgrims have moved on. That's an interesting point. I mean, when it came to these hemophilia products, I haven't seen much from Harvard Pilgrims in particular about these two drugs. There might be something to your point around Jim Kenny not being at that institution anymore. The other thing that comes to mind in terms of innovative or outcomes-based agreements is in the U.S., things are just moving more towards the warranty space because we saw with Pfizer and Zalcori, and was it now a couple of years ago where they came up with this warranty plan where if your patient stopped taking the drug, you would rebate the full cost of the drug to them. And they then did this with another rare disease drug called panzygum for a rare disease polyneuropathy condition. And now, if you look at what we've heard out of the investor presentation from Biomarin in regards to Roctavian, they've also said that they've approached some U.S. bears and have talked to them about warranty-based payment plans. We've talked about the insurance companies and how they're likely to react to it. We've talked about the science. What are physicians and patients saying about gene therapy for hemophilia? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of excitement in this space. There's a bit of a difference between hemophilia A and B in the sense that Hemlibra, when it launched, has become the gold standard now. So it is used as prophylaxis instead of just the factor replacement. But hemophilia B really has not had anything new outside of just the regular prophylactic factor replacement. So this hemogenics approval is actually really quite exciting. And the data looks great in terms of the reduction in the annualized bleeding rates. What's next now? We've talked about lots of things in the industry. If you're a biotech firm or an innovator and you're making a gene therapy, maybe not a gene therapy for hemophilia because you have now very strong competitors that are out there, or at least first movers that are out there, but you're thinking about gene therapy, what lessons do you take home from the hemophilia experience so far? A couple of interesting things, right? One, Biomarin's initial FDA package, the FDA did ask for additional data, which is why the EU approval actually happened first in August. And now with the additional data, the FDA approval is expected in March. So the evidence requirements are so challenging in this space. The evidence packages are tied to single arm, sometimes historical control trials. There's usually no active comparators, very small patient populations, and then very limited follow-on periods. That's just a challenging evidence package for regulators to deal with. Same for payers and HDA bodies outside the U.S. when they have to evaluate these drugs. HDA, meaning? Health Technology Assessment. Okay, so these are review bodies that decide whether or not something should be on formulary or approved. Exactly. They basically decide whether there's a clinical efficacy that warrants the drug being approved and then reimbursed in their markets. Outside the U.S. Exactly. 
Yeah, so lots to think about. And honestly, as you pointed out, the FDA required more information from Biomarin on their gene therapy. But that would have been with still a lot of tailwind because of the unmet need. That's not going to be the case for the next company with a gene therapy in hemophilia A or hemophilia B. It's a better than the Beatles problem. You can't just have a good song. You have to have a song that's better than every other song in the genre. You have to be better than the Beatles. And that's hard. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess I would just say that this is a pretty targeted population. So there is room, of course, for targeting other patients. You know, Roctavian, interestingly, actually has a companion diagnostic associated with it. So patients get tested to make sure that you don't have any pre-existing AAV5 antibodies. And these are all severe hemophilia A patients. So there's room, of course, for new products that target a broader range of hemophilia A patients. But make sure your clinical package is even better than the last one. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, outside of the U.S., the regulators are asking for registries and 15-year follow-on data. 15 years? Yes, that's right. They're looking for 15 years, including post-market? Exactly. So Roctavian is now approved in EU, conditional approval, and part of the agreement is that they will have to have 15-year follow-on data. Okay, that's much less onerous than you have to have 15 years of data to show us that you have some durability. My recollection is five years is at least the payer accepted standard for a durable response. You have to be able to continue having pumping out whatever gene it is and having an effect, whatever protein it is and have an effect for five years. And then that's durable enough for them to consider. Am I missing something on that one? No, you're right. And then, in fact, even more proof of that point, in Europe, Biomarin is also pursuing outcomes-based agreements. But of course, there, the infrastructure exists where you can think about things other than warranties or rebates. So they're thinking about five to eight-year timeframe outcomes-based agreements in Germany in particular. Ankita, it's just been a pleasure talking to you about something that is truly one of the most exciting things that has happened in our lifetimes medically. Having these gene therapies come out and be able to effectively cure disease for patients that are under huge unmet medical need and are currently taking drugs that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It's just fantastic. What a triumph, really. Ankita Chaudhary, thank you again for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.